Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Veterans ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. There are nearly 20 million military vets in the U.S. And each week we focus on their stories. This is CBS Eye on Veterans. All right, welcome back to CBS Eye on Veterans, reporting for ConnectingVets.com. I'm Navy veteran and journalist Phil Briggs, and uh, we're going to get into kind of an uncomfortable topic this week, but it's one I am guaranteed you're going to be interested in, and it shines a light on the recent school violence. Really, I'm looking to find some veterans that are out there making a difference and doing something actionable, doing something that can truly help. And uh, we're going to focus on that this week and talk to some combat vets who are using their skills and experience to make schools safer. Our guest right now is Todd Langley. He's the founder of Crisis Response Leadership Training. Todd's got a lot of experience. He's worked in special operations and special missions units within the military and uh, for 27 years. He's been a soldier, an officer, and a senior advisor on some of the most sensitive missions in the U.S. military. So with that, let's say hello to Mr. Todd Langley. Welcome to CBS Ion Veterans. Good morning, Phil. It's great to be here. Thanks. I appreciate it. Yeah, and uh, you know what? I was really glad when a friend of ours gave me your name and I looked at your website and saw, you know, that there are people out there. There are helpers. There are folks trying to do something to change the trend that we see, which is just violence, anger, and sadly, so many of these school shootings so before we get into uh, your work there and this thing you've created called Crisis Leadership Training, uh, let's start with you a little bit. Tell me about uh, your background. Give me the DOD or the DD-214 cliff notes. From an early age, I knew that I wanted to serve. So as soon as I came out of high school, I signed an early uh, contract to get into the National Guard and the infantry. 
So I did that while trying to pay and support myself to get through college. I was infantry, private through sergeant, went through basic training, graduation from Purdue, was commissioned active duty infantry, was an infantry lieutenant, and then uh, transitioned to intelligence. I was successful and lucky, fortunate to have three commands, including a tank company and a reconnaissance cavalry troop command. In fact, it was very uh, tank on tank uh, type of warfare, you know, in between Desert Storm and the global war on terror. I was there when 9-11 happened. Uh, I, I remember very clearly where I was at and what I was doing. So I did put in some packets for special operations. I was picked up in one of those as a sensitive career. Uh, I could say, you know, without violating anything, that I went through a six-month training certification course. And uh, after completing that, was assigned into supporting our special mission units and special forces, predominantly in Iraq. As a singleton officer conducting close tactical reconnaissance, high-value individual uh, targeting, and uh, other sense of operations. My last assignment was in charge of, you know, sense of activities for, for one of our theaters. Then later became a senior advisor to another special mission unit. So about six years of combat out of 11 and a half years of deployment. And then if that doesn't sound like enough, I guess after that, I went in and, uh, and made it through another selection program for hostage rescue and personal recovery within the intelligence community and conducted sensitive activities for another six years. A stellar career, if that's not an understatement. But uh, I think it's interesting, the trajectory from the tank officer to the intel community and you've said a couple buzzwords in there you know high value targets uh reconnaissance uh what kind of soldiers were working underneath you though when you were working those special missions then and kind of what was their role it was actually unique it was the first hybrid cavalry troop being put together for a new concept that was coming back you know coming in in the early 2000s so essentially we had a new combat vehicle platform to increase mobility uh, and we wanted to be as lethal as we could be, but more agile. So realizing that, you know, how long does it take to get a tank into a, a battlefield situation? You know, a month before it's prepared, that kind of thing. So what we really looked at was a hybrid of where within one troop, we included uh, combat reconnaissance capabilities, sensor capabilities for detecting things like signals, intelligence, you know, commu- radio communications, chemical, biological uh, type of reconnaissance, and then UAVs. So all of that being put together and then in direct support of other cavalry troops and then those being in support of, you know, your regular combat forces. And what you said on that and what I think you're getting at it is what makes it unique is, is that from the conventional sense over to the special operations sense, that carries over very well. What I mean is that it takes a lot of different types of skill sets. It's not one person. Uh, even in special operations, I might be out there conducting it in disguise in a nondescript vehicle. I may be driving around and collecting data on a potential target. Well, there's probably 50 people behind me from technical support to maintenance to intelligence analysts to the operators that are going to do the follow on actual hit. And all of that's got to come together and it's got to be very well planned, rehearsed and, and synchronized for execution to have mission success. And all the way into what I'm doing now, that those, what I call friction points, those leadership challenges carry through. I've seen them across the United States, and those, they're the same issues I saw in combat. And when you work through those and find out the solutions, you can see that, yeah, there, there's a lot of goodness of what we can do to, to make things better. 
all those different layers, all those links in the chain need to communicate with each other effectively, but they need to help create a good big picture of what's going on so that when it does come time to, at least in the military's case, unleash the special operations teams, that everything has been checked, everything has been thought of. And then in the special operations community, then were you working alongside, I'm guessing like Ranger battalions, or you were working with some of the special mission units that actually went and kicked the doors and yeah, yes, all of the above. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I can't specifically talk about my role or the units that I was a part of, but uh, I don't think there were many units that I wasn't fortunate enough to have an opportunity to conduct some type of operation with, whether it was our tier one forces, both in the army and the Navy side, uh, the Ranger elements, special forces, as well as conventional forces. Because of that background, you truly understand how many elements need to communicate in order to end a crisis situation. Uh, let's talk about the inspiration for applying your experience in the military to crisis leadership training. How did this all come about? How did you end up leaving the military and going, you know what? I want to create a, a, a software solution or a method here to deal with tragedies in schools and gun violence. Well, that, that's a long story. I, I try to shorten it down as much as I can. Is I was at the end of my career as a senior cadre for the selection and training, and you still have to maintain operational status capability, which requires a recertification process. And within just training and age, I was getting to the point where I was sustaining injuries that were preventing me from recovering fully to be able to get to that point. You get to a point where it's like you just got to call it. You know this. Some factors are a younger man's game. So I knew I knew that I needed to leave and I needed to do something where I knew that I could still be of help. And, and so I was fortunate enough through my own community, you know, I was able to get into ride alongs with law enforcement. I was able to talk to emergency management. I was able to get into schools. What I saw was, was that in some of my previous work and understanding what, what is good and bad about our targeting methods, what what's working or what's not working. And I saw that the the problems were almost exactly the same. It didn't matter if you were special ops, conventional forces. It didn't matter if you were a a rural sheriff. They always seem to have the same, at least the same leadership and staff friction points is what I call them. And when I saw that and said, okay, well, maybe there's something I can do that would help in transition with this. I was fortunate enough also that my cousin and partner is just a genius when it comes to coding and specifically how you would code that into a video game engine. So when we started looking at what I thought I might be able to transition, what I've learned and how I can pass that on, how do we convey that? And really, you know, maybe my major concern and question with that is, is that do we feel today with all of the statistics and the situational awareness that we're beginning to assess about something like incident response to an active shooter event, Do we feel that we have a balanced solution that supports both our first responder community and the average citizen? And do we feel that there is enough initial training and recurring training that ensures that we are prepared for those incidents? Now, certainly for me, my perspective is is that we're not. Let me read a sentence from your website real quick that describes it and then get into the details about what, again, we're talking about with respect to the software and the training simulator you've made. 
It says crisis response leadership training is an Indiana small business software simulation and consulting company that provides support to emergency and crisis response leaders through detailed and realistic simulation. Unpack that a little bit. Yeah, there is a lot to unpack. And I think first is what you said is, you know, detailed and realistic versus realism. And that goes back to what what are the solutions that are being primarily given toward law enforcement for the rapid response to an active shooter event? And and from a technical perspective, the things are mostly virtual reality or some type of augmented reality, which funnel right back into what you said, which is about, you know, they, they may know how to handle things uh, in law enforcement response at the individual level. What does that mean to the team dynamic? And then when, when you have several teams operating together, what does that mean to what's called incident command? or then unified command if we're multi-agency, multi-jurisdictional. And as an example, what you would typically see, uh, and here's just a case study from, from something I participated in, uh, one community coming together, force law enforcement officers that would be able to train in a live environment where they look to identify, neutralize the suspect, and they're using sim munitions, i.e. it's like a paint pellet with a, a bullet cartridge that you put into your weapon. Typically, those officers will only get four hours of individual level training, identify, neutralize a threat, and maybe a tourniquet. And then the ones that are supervising that training are the ones that would need to be able to do incident command level execution on the job for things like triage, establishing cash collection point, inner outer perimeter, clear, back clear, establishing your medical staging area, your in and out routes for your ground evacuation, where your HLZs are, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 50% of incidents are over before law enforcement even arrive on the scene. So you also have to ensure you are incorporating the community of people that are there so that they're prepared to support you. They have to know how to help or get out of the way. So when you combine all that together and say that was one day or one week in a training, that's $60,000 of effort, whether that's your overtime and resources, et cetera. Most communities across the United States would be unable to afford that more than maybe once per year. Well, with a sharp learning and forgetting curve, you're looking at losing 70 to 90% of the information you gained within 30 days. So if you're only training on it once per year and, and the, the leaders aren't even training on their own skills or supervising their training of the ones below them, then how are they really stating that they are prepared to, to all the, the list of things I described? So within our simulation, what we're really trying to describe is that when we say detailed and realistic, we're talking about the probability of outcomes based on your decisions. So imagine it being an animated chess match where we are throwing you scenarios that whenever you make decisions, the threat and the thousands of civilians that we can incorporate in scenarios each have their own individual AI and they're programmed based on data tables from all the national references. So they're going to give you a very realistic outcome based on your decisions. And that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to increase greater problem solving skills for emergency management and incident commanders by giving them the ability to think through the critical problem-solving skills needed for an incident response. So if I were to dumb it down, really also this helps the law enforcement officers that all show up separate. It helps them suddenly realize now they form up as a team. And then it helps that battalion commander or that lieutenant, a police officer, show up on the scene, immediately open up the laptop, and get visual and understand all the things, evacuation routes, medical staging, where his guys are, where the threat is. He's able to map this all out and see and better orchestrate his team 
and better orchestrate the evacuation of the internal teams that are helping move the students around. And it gives them kind of like a, a bird's eye view or a, or a 30,000 foot view of the situation. And again, giving the leaders, the leadership training, giving the law enforcement officers, the access and control point training. Is that kind of a dumbed down version of? No, yeah, it's very well said. And it, it's not, it's not rocket science for what we're asking people to do, but it's, it's not easy. And, and that is part of the challenges because you, you broke it down in a very, very good way of understanding. That initial officer that arrives on the scene, whether it's the school resource officer that's already or a private security person that's already on the scene, well, they're technically they're in charge of the incident until relieved by somebody higher. And then as each individual officer or responder comes on the scene, that chain of command is going to change. So it's fluid, which entails right away situational awareness and communication. It also shows that you have to have an integrated plan that everybody already understands and will, will abide to. So it's going to force that in understanding things like task organization of teams and, you know, how we're going to work together. But again, you know, just it, it's also got individual modules linked to the simulation to promote great awareness and, and preparedness for individuals that are not responders, like let's say a teacher or employee at a business. What's the difference of run, hide, fight compared to lockdown? There, there are specific lessons and training objectives within the simulation to make sure that they understand that. Because, you know, there were a couple of things that came out even out of Nashville. Those in lockdown survived. Those that ran survived. Those that were unfortunate and stuck in the hallways, you know, were at a higher vulnerability and risk and, and were injured. So now you got to understand, okay, where run, where to hide? Where do I hide and how long is a time barrier does it create for me? Should I always hide in a lockdown or should I continue to move away from the shooter if I've created that barrier? So the simulation is designed equally to support that, whether it's automated through the AI or if it's forcing you to make your own personal decisions, it's designed to give that greater awareness as well. Talk to me about what it looks like. It, it, it looks kind of like a video game or it's a, it's a map of a school and it shows figures or graphics moving around and and you sort of interact with this? You know, we call it gamification, not to take away from any importance of training, but that's that's the terms being utilized. And it really comes back to visual learning. You know, what what allows you to retain greater information? PowerPoint and sitting, you know, with your butt in a seat for 40 hours for accreditation or giving you visual stimulus. So that that is important. We we are actually using a video game engine. Uh, it's called Unreal Engine 5.1 and is created by Epic Games. Uh, they're the ones who created Fortnite. So, you know, we, we think they know what they're doing when it comes to, you know, stunning visuals and graphics. It's going to look as if it's a camera looking down on top of the character. It is not first person or through the eyes of the, the characters like virtual reality, which has certainly got its place when we're talking about individual action, reaction, judgment skills. How fast can I recognize a threat, draw, and, you know, take down a potential target? We're looking down because it gives you a greater understanding of the scope of the, the challenge of the problem set that you're being uh, given. So rather than thinking about 20 to 30 characters in a virtual reality environment, which is going to max out the systems, we're talking thousands. And so it's going to look like, you know, like almost like a hologram of 3D characters in chess. They're moving in turns. And those turns are allowing the AI to read what you did comparison to the others within the scenario. 
but you're controlling the uh, security on the ground. You're controlling the law enforcement, fire and rescue, EMS. You're controlling the teachers. We can create special characters. And then we either have a baseline software capability, which is right now middle school or non-denominational house of worship. And we're going to include many more like movie theater, mall, indoor, outdoor arena spaces. But we also, for our clients, can create their own property. So you're training on your specific school or business. We've done that several times in the last year. One of the things I think that makes it so vital is the timeline. And I was blown away when you and I talked about this a week ago. Share with me that timeline that just shows how critical this is. So let's just take it back from a subtraction time period or an addition time period is to that way. Let's say an active shooter threat indication moves into a target location. Right now, it would look like the average for that for realizing that you're in some type of threat position where you need to call 911. That's taking about two to three minutes. It takes about another minute for the information to be gathered by dispatch and to be sent to as a general call to law enforcement to respond. So we're at about the four minute mark. Average response time is about three to three and a half minutes. So you're now in between seven and eight minutes. That's without identifying and neutralizing the threat. So you can see it in some case studies somewhere around the 14 minute mark all the way to the 74 minute mark for identifying, neutralizing the threat to begin considerations. Or we just take it in there and let's say probably if we're lucky, three to five minutes. So now we're around somewhere between 12 and 15 minute window. Now add in there the amount of time it takes to identify all the wounded clear the rest of the building to make sure it's safe to bring in the EMTB paramedics, uh, which there's, there's got to be challenge and coordinations there, setting up a casualty collection point, moving them from gurneys to ambulances or to helicopters, and then getting them with time of traffic back to a level two care. Right now, the standard that is being pressed, I believe, at the national level is, is that you need to start ground evacuation at the 15-minute mark which is about two to three minutes prior to when you identify or neutralize a threat. So how in the world do you make that happen? It almost seems impossible. But the idea is, is that understanding that there's a countdown timer going on and the most efficient, effective, and coordinated response is what you have to have, and it has to be nearly perfect, is what's going to reduce your diet of wounds rates. The number of gunshot victims that are still alive and stable from the time period of being transported from the scene to the hospital is absolutely critical. And that is what our passion is about, is understanding that we know it's not easy. We are asking a lot, but we do believe that there's a way through our solution and, and certainly a lot of other solutions. There's a way to educate and, and create a leadership uh, decision-making process that's going to help us get better and better at that. Yeah, so that way when all of these different various components of law enforcement, maybe even various jurisdictions, if the cops all had very similar software training, their instincts would be similar. They would know four need to form up here. One guy needs to take the lead. Somebody senior needs to be tracking and looking at all the variables going on. And then there's got to be the guys going in on scene. And those guys need to now know how to work together. And these instincts can be learned through correct training. And that's, again, where the crisis leadership, a crisis response leadership training comes in. That's an instinct that's probably not easy to come by. Yeah, for me, you know, for my old 
skills. Let's say, say as an example, the very first yard line from shooting that I have to qualify for to get through one of my, my uh, selections is a concealed carry to draw it and hit the target six times in a row without missing in a certain timeline. Well, that muscle memory to get to that just as a smooth draw, to be able to acquire that front side post and put that where it needs to be, I'm confident I trained on at least 8,000 times in 30 days just to go through that first, that very first shooting line. So that muscle memory to make that happen was absolutely critical to getting through just that first shooting line. Why would we think that we can't do the same with muscle memory to brain memory to shorten down you know, what we need to do assess? And the biggest thing I, I, I tell people, you know, is I, I was always looking for the global scout, not the gunslinger. 99% of the time, you can avoid, identify and avoid a risk. And then when you can't, then certainly you're prepared to do your gunslinger job. But the only way you're going to get to that preparation capability is through a lot of situational awareness and problem-solving skills. We're now starting to realize that individual and team-level tactics are extremely important, and you have to be very agile and fluid. Why are we sacrificing the leadership-required skills that almost all of our officers, and especially, you know, our, our mid-level and higher-level management, they need those skills. And we're asking, why, why isn't there a solution out there to help with that just as much as what we've been training on over the last, you know, 10, 10 or so years? Right on. Is there something school systems beyond training? Now, this is, again, I know training is the number one answer here. <laughs> but are there things schools should be doing or should have in place in order to mitigate this threat from ever happening again, I hear school resource officers. I hear some people say metal detectors are the new, you know, sprinkler systems. You know, it's like that's what you need at every entrance and exit. You're in this space, man. Is there something universally that schools or government should be supplying schools with? Well, yeah, first and foremost, and you'll see it from the National Threat Assessment Center report, that's first and foremost prevention. There are a lot of indicative behaviors or signals coming from the suspects or, you know, the actual shooters or attackers. There are signs and symptoms out there that we need to be paid attention to, whether they're going to family, coworkers, friends, online personas, or, or, or even triggering events. Well, what does that mean currently that's going across the United States and maybe in the world? It used to be called a, a BTAT, Behavioral Threat Assessment Team. And it's really a consolidation of roles and responsibilities. And particularly we're seeing in schools, but I would advocate it's just as important or more important in our businesses because businesses are much higher uh, threat probability of an active assailant compared to schools. But it is like, what is, what is your security apparatus uh, linked into uh, HR or to a psychologist to the, the nurse? How do they interact? And it, and intentionally, there are silos of information about these potential warnings of, you know, suspects based on, you know, medical and, and school regulations and how you protect the privacy of individuals. Without violating those, how do you put those various rules and responsibilities together so that you have a greater picture of, of what needs to be done? So if you link prevention to correct intervention, maybe things won't happen. I'm confident that if we develop that as a greater standard, that it will reduce the overall number of, of incidents. 
Now, so that, that is primarily. Now, you said something about vendor solutions, and even, and I put myself in this. I'm a big advocate of saying there is no silver bullet out there. There is no one right solution that is going to prepare you because these threats, you know, we could, we, we talk about them being evil, but really it comes down to is they have a mission and they're going to find a way around. It's called asymmetric. They're going to attack us at our vulnerability. So we're never going to, in my opinion, we're never going to solve 100%. We're never going to prevent 100%. Certain things like metal detectors at airports and other locations, they have a 70 to 90% failure rate. So, but is it a part of a solution? Does it deter? Does it channelize to a position where we can identify potential suspects? What about artificial intelligence linking to identifying weapons in the parking lot? Uh, does it have a, a false positive read on, oh, that's not a gun, that's a cell phone in the hand? Um, so, you know, what about film that could cover glass so that, you know, you can't penetrate, you can't breach it. So we have a locked door, but we're shooting right through glass and walking right through. Can, can we do that? We can do all those things. The problem is, is each one of those is extremely expensive and takes years to put into a budget plan and that we don't know if it'll even be a hundred percent. So I think the, the biggest thing is to have a problem solving skill linking to prevention into potential solutions. And then prioritizing what solutions will have the, the best coverage for your area. And then continually improving upon that through the training piece that allows it to be a, a cyclical process. So I go through this problem solving. I've got solutions. We've rehearsed it. We know how, what we did well. We know what we need to improve upon. And that starts the process over again. And I would say it needs to be done on a yearly basis like that. Your experience and your knowledge base, uh, I'm just so glad you're bringing to the game here and that you're trying to make a difference. Again, uh, we're talking crisis response leadership training. And uh, where do I find out more information about the services you offer in these training modules? We've got a couple of different sites, primarily our website, crisisresponse.tech, T-E-C-H. We'll give you an overview of the simulation, our mission, what it means to how we provide consulting services. If you want to follow us more directly with a lot of hopefully good content and what we're trying to give back to the community, I would invite you to come over to LinkedIn to Crisis Response Leader Training Incorporated's company page, uh, where we'll put out a balance of helpful content while also talking about simulation features. What we're trying to demonstrate is, is that we want to reduce that sharp learning curve and you make sure we don't have as much forgetting curve by allowing you to utilize a solution as many times per year as you desire. It could be downloaded directly to your own laptop or computer. And we also have cloud-based. We're one of the first in the nation to come out with three-dimensional simulations like a video game, but making it for emergency management, and it's all on the cloud. So you don't even have to download it. You just have to put in for subscription. And then as many users as you want on it can be in on the simulation throughout the entire year. We can't think of a greater way to educate individuals, leaders, and then bring the community back together. And we're trying to do that uh, in the best way that we know how. It makes me feel better knowing that these resources are out there and that it's not just law enforcement or school, but whether you own an ice cream shop, a dry cleaner, a roller rink, a movie theater, like anything. I mean, you know, there could be an explosion at an Applebee's and everyone would need to know how to safely get out of the building. But preparing yourself is the first step to getting by in this unsafe world. And uh, I love your motto, preparing today for a safer tomorrow. Todd Langley, appreciate your time crisis response leadership training and uh, just just thank you for stepping up i appreciate it phil again it was an honor to be here and i, I appreciate the questions uh, this was a good discussion rock and roll
Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Veterans ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sant from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, early and ad-free on the 48 Hours Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts.